This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley's meat sticks have been a lifesaver during this hot summer. Since they're shelf stable, I always have three Paleo Valley meat sticks in my bag at all times. It's also been perfect for my boys' lunch boxes. I love Paleo Valley's grass finished beef sticks and pasture raised turkey sticks because they support US family farmers that focus on regenerative agriculture. These meat sticks are from animals that have never been fed grains, soy, corn, or GMOs and have never been given antibiotics. The spices in these meat sticks are also 100% organic. The sticks come in five different flavors, and my favorite is the original beef stick, and my boys love the teriyaki beef sticks and the original pasture raised turkey stick. Paleo Valley's meat sticks are a perfect snack and, frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Each stick is about $2 with our discount code, and it comes in a 10 pack bag. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.comslash CATG and use code CATG to get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's one thing to say, I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole other thing to say, you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're jumping from diet to diet, at a certain point, you have to wonder the only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk, yeah. breathe yeah. some fresh air, and stay happy and healthy and, and take care of yourselves. Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Get ready for some real talk with your hosts, Judy Cho and Laura Spath. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm here with my friend and co host Laura Spath. Laura and I were talking offline about an interview with Dr. Asim Maholtra. Laura's been able to see him in person. Yeah, he, it was in Austin. Uh, it was in Austin. He was speaking at the Sapien Center. So um, he has known Brian for years, I guess. Like um, Dr. Haseem. Uh, Asim has been speaking out against statins and the link between your health and obesity um, and kind of just the medical industry in general. He's a cardiologist, just to give people some context, um, in um, London and Britain. This is where I sound like a stupid American because I always say London, but I'm like, London's the city, not the country. And I don't think he's from London. I think he's England? from England. I don't know That's what they so, sound so, like. You know, is it Britain or London? The U- UK, I think, is, is so, my blonde moment, quote unquote. <laughs> See, is it the United Kingdom or yeah, England so I don't know. or Britain? So I don't know if the UK, I think the UK, okay, so the UK is England. But when <laughs> we just sound like, and I'm really, up, this is where we sound like ignorant <laughs> Americans, I'm sorry. But he is a very esteemed cardiologist, practicing cardiologist. And since like 2013, 2014, he has been very outspoken in the media as a controversial figure speaking out against statins, um, the link between saturated fat and heart disease. You know, he wrote some article called Butter is Back um, that was in like the, you know, British medical journals. Um, was in like all the major newspapers and caused a lot of controversy. He actually lost his job um, speaking out against the fact that saturated fat is not bad, is that obesity is a problem, um, that high cholesterol is and statins are you know 
it's all a myth and all of these kind of things. He lost his job and ended up having to work at a different hospital. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Anyway, yeah, that's like a whole huge backstory. So he and Brian Sanders, whose food lies, got connected for the movie, uh, I believe, you know, many years ago and have been working together ever since. He was in Austin fairly recently. You know, more recently, he's been talking, speaking out against the COVID vaccine. To give some context also, he fully believes his father died from uh, an adverse reaction to the COVID vaccine. Um, and we're not going to talk about the whole vaccine thing today. Like we've, I feel like we've talked about that a lot, but just to give context, I guess. Also, he actually was a proponent and an advocate for right. the COVID vaccine. He actually went on Good Morning Britain speaking out to people of um, specifically to minorities in Britain encouraging them to get the vaccine and to try to combat vaccine hesitancy. And then unfortunately his father passed away a couple of months later from uh, what he believes is a vaccine injury, but he was recently on. So I got a chance to go hear him speak at the Sapien center in Austin kind of randomly, which was a really fantastic experience. Um, and then that was in November. Uh, and then this past couple, I guess, I don't know when this is going to come out versus when we're recording it, but recently he was on Joe Rogan um, and did a three hour episode there. A lot of it, obviously they talked about vaccines, um, but a biggest chunk of it, they spent the first hour talking about cholesterol statins, you know, kind of his take on all of that stuff. And then just like the prescription medical industry in general. I, I saw an interview with him a long time ago where he lost his mom and he blames the NIH, I guess that's what they call the medical. So this is my ignorance now, but I guess they call their medical healthcare um, NIH, but he yeah. feels that because of their care or their incorrect care of diabetes or um, whatever other metabolic syndrome illness uh, she had, even though she was, I think she was a surgeon, um, some medical doctor, but she died early. And I think that's what was the first unveil for him with in terms of cholesterol. And that's where he started becoming because it became per personal, right? You end up becoming an advocate and switching from the narrative when it deeply impacts you personally. And I saw that right. that happened to him. And I, I did a video on like the case for carnivore and I talked about statins and the fear of cholesterol. And then when I was putting in the source, it was from Dr. Asim and his team or whoever he worked with with that. But we can talk about those yeah. things too. But I, I commend him. It's so hard to come out when you had a stance, um, even if it was for the vaccine, it's just now that he's saying, actually, I was wrong. Um, it takes so many people. It takes a certain type of person to be able to do that. And there's not a lot of, unfortunately, there's not a lot of doctors and providers or researchers that will say, hey, I was wrong on a stance I had. Yeah, it takes tremendous bravery and humility to be able to do that. And there's a lot of people who were very pronounced in the media and yeah, I mean, listen, there's a lot of people in my personal life who were wrong and were very loud about being wrong. And yet they're they're all very, very quiet right now. Um, and there's very few people who are coming out and saying, actually, I was wrong and being bold enough and brave enough to to admit that and apologize. There's some people saying like, well, the information has right. changed. Um, but I think that's still also an under. Uh, an understatement of like what was said before. I mean, there was, it was, you know, things got wild. Um, there, there's still a lot of information that needs to be shared publicly and hopefully one day yeah, other people will have their, the veil lifted. But I mean, that that's a topic for another day, but 
What so what exactly did they talk about? I mean, I I listened to a little bit of it, but um, if you can share a little bit of you know what they talked about with statins, yeah. cholesterol, and. Yeah, so it's the first hour of this podcast is really worth listening to. I am certainly not an expert. I take a lot of notes. I shared a clip of this on Instagram. The clip that I shared on Instagram really focuses around the business model of the prescription drug industry. They have, you know, per, any type of prescription drug company has a legal responsibility to provide profit to their shareholders. It is not, they do not have a legal responsibility to provide better treatment to people. That's what a doctor's job is, right? A doctor's job is to give, is there, that's their moral and legal obligation is to provide you proper medical information. But the problem is the prescription drug drug industry is legally responsible to provide profit to its shareholders. And they then also incentivize doctors uh, so while their response, a doctor's responsibility is to provide you proper medical treatment, they are financially incentivized by people who are financially incentivized and legally responsible to make profit. And so he really talks about, I mean, like huge, huge information that he dropped throughout this. I'm sharing none of it in order and everything that I'm sharing is from this interview. I strongly would encourage you to listen to it. I'm just taking in like what was powerful to me to hear even in this place. But he quoted some, and also I will say this, he does such an incredible job of bringing up facts and statistics and studies and knowing when and where things came from uh, and does a much better job of that than I do. But, you know, he mentioned that there are studies that are showing that the third most common cause of death in society currently after heart disease and cancer is prescription medication. Medication that is prescribed to you from a doctor is the third leading cause of death currently. And that is due to adverse side effects. We have too many people who are prescribed too many medications, right? This is where he said, and this is the clip I shared on Instagram. That was, you know, the business model of the prescription drug industry is to get as many people as possible, taking as many medications as possible for as long as possible. And that is already a huge realization. And then to go beyond that, the number one drug that's prescribed in the world, there's over a billion people in the world that are taking statin statin drugs to lower cholesterol. Um, And I think it's like he said 335 million people in the U.S. alone. But there's a billion people worldwide that are taking statins. And it's less than 1% of those people are actually given a positive benefit. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of people that are actually having worse outcomes from taking those steps. And just to add some of this to the statistics, I don't know if they brought this up, but one of the top five deaths also is accidental, like misdiagnosis, um, accidental death in mm-hmm. surgery. So there's a lot of things that are not covered in terms of what it people are dying from. We are so afraid of heart disease and um, all of these illnesses. And so we're like, okay, we'll take the medication. We'll t- do what the doctor says. Right. But then right right next to that is actually a lot of these accidents from the actual drug itself. Uh, when I interviewed with Dr. Thomas Seafried, he said that when they say somebody died from cancer complications, it's almost always because they were going through chemo and the chemo itself killed them. 
but they never say it was chemo. Mm. They just say cancer complications. Right. And most people don't know that. So everyone thinks chemo safe because you have to do that in order right. to, to remove cancer cells from your system. But it's like you said, it's it's this whole big business model. And as statins are becoming more prevalent and, and the pharmaceutical companies are losing their patents, so now there's more generic ones, these big like Pfizer's need to create new drugs because otherwise they won't stay profitable. So once their drug used to be hundreds right. of dollars is now just a dollar, that's where they're going to lose money. And that's where you have to wonder, is that why they're also pushing a lot of these vaccines? And I could talk about the mental health space there are antidepressants that now it's it's like pennies to afford. And so when they're getting into these antipsychotics that are taken in tandem with antidepressants, in order to afford it, like one pill is hundreds of dollars and you have to take it every day because right now they have a patent on it. So now they're pushing it. If you see on commercials, they'll say, if your antidepressants aren't working enough, here's an additional drug that you can ask your doctor right. for because those drugs are super expensive and insurance may cover some of it, but really it's that um, the pharmaceutical companies profit way more. Well, he talked about the fact that the majority of like over, I think it was somewhere around only 10% of medications that have been um, created, like new medications over the last, you know, however many decades are actually new innovative medications. The majority of them take an old medication that's no longer patented slightly change it, rename it, and then charge, put a new patent on it and then are able to charge you more. Right. So then it's like, you know, they said the more expensive the medication is often the less likely it is to actually help you. But it's because of the fact that it's the more expensive it is, the less helpful it's going to be so that the less likely they're going to get a ton of people to take it. So they actually charge you more for it to make it number one, seem more desirable and then also number two, to try to maximize the profit that they're going to get because not as many people are going to take it because it's not actually very effective. I believe it. Um, when I was a, when I was working at a strategy consulting firm, um, they had a big healthcare practice. And this was one of the projects that started making me think this is not the kind of work I want to do. And so the pharmaceutical company had a certain pill. Um, it was a cancer treatment they, they wouldn't share a lot of the um, R&D about it, but our goals as an analyst was to do all the research on all the hospital beds in the cancer wards of all the hospitals around the U.S. to figure out at what point can they price the medication to be the highest it is for the certain amount of people that can afford it. And I remember when we were trying to figure out the numbers of this is the best economics for this medication rather than this can actually help all the people suffering from cancer. And I just felt unethical, but I remember literally counting hospital beds at certain hospitals. And if that information wasn't on the website, we were calling the hospitals to find out, hey, in your oncology department, how many hospital beds do you have? And it was just such a horrible project just from an ethical perspective. So I I fully believe it. Yeah, this is where like, unfortunately, a lot over the last few years, people are losing trust in doctors and in the medical establishment. And that is honestly, it's going to be this snowball effect that impacts people negatively for years to come because people are so distrusting of doctors at this point. And I don't even necessarily blame a lot of doctors. It's the fact that the majority of them are not allowed to question quote, the science, right? And yet doctors are told when they go through medical school that 
science is changing. There is no such thing as stagnant science. And this idea that science is settled has only been talked about over the last couple of years. And we've seen how that's just not even true. Um, But, you know, doctors are told, Dr. Asim mentioned that 50% of what you, the science that you learn in medical school within the next five to 10 years will be wrong and will have changed. But Nobody can tell you what's going to be different and what's going to be wrong. You literally just have to like wait and see and figure it out by dealing with patients and analyzing the information and coming up with new research and really continuing to learn and grow. But the problem is the financial incentives from the drug industry and from the government in a lot of ways don't allow you to learn and grow and adapt and change what it is that we're saying. And I think this is to me like, not what we're trying to talk about today, but like this is the problem with businesses and the medical industry and the government all coming together and everybody is financially incentivized. When if you had true capitalism, if we had less government regulations around this, if you had doctors who were more emboldened to speak out to question what was happening, you would have so lower drug prices. You I mean, like the fact that our insurance companies are not like the worst thing that we can do is come up with a not governmental uh, healthcare system, because then you take out any private competition, right. like, you know, things like Medicare sound amazing because they provide medical insurance to people who don't have financial resources or they're older. But the problem is now you've taken away the competition and the prices can just be dictated by the government and by the drug industry. And you lose out on the competition, which drives prices down. Yeah, it's I mean, it's really unfortunate. But the other thing I'd say about Medicare, though, is somebody that's suffering from SERS, for example, they won't get covered because what it's the Medicare. It's not a government approved protocol. Exactly. So it's, it also limits care. So that's just where it's unfortunate, but it is really a big business. Um, when I, I try to think about, is it the doctors? Is it the pharmaceutical companies? And it's really just a mix of everything. So when doctors come out of medical school in order to get part of these networks, um, they have to join these, I guess, insurance networks or healthcare networks, and then they get paid based on, I only will give you like seven to $10 to meet every single patient in order for you to be worth the cost. You just need to see like 30, 40 patients every day. They also have, um, I can't remember which doctor told me this, but they also told me that for every person that comes in with high cholesterol markers, if the doctor does not prescribe a statin in that, they get deemed on their uh, medical record. So they are almost forced to recommend a statin because then you are held liable for that. Right. It'll affect whether or not people will give them insurance for um, malpractice or whether or not certain networks will cover you or whether certain insurance companies will actually like let you accept their insurance into your practice. Like this is where I do think the majority of doctors have good intentions and are trying to help people, but the system itself doesn't allow them to do that. And it certainly doesn't allow them to speak out. You have somebody like Dr. Asim who's speaking out against the fact that butter is not causing heart disease and that saturated fat is not bad. And he loses his job because of it. Yeah, it's crazy. I spoke with a doctor that knows Dr. McCullough, I forget is what his first mm-hmm. name is, but in that Peter. network, and he he also has spoken out so much about COVID and the vaccine. And while he's been on such big platforms, I heard he's going broke um, for the same things, right? Oh, sure. So it's yeah. you share information that can help the people, and then you are branded for the rest of your life as your quack science. Your information is wrong. And so many, many people will not believe you. And even if you're on Rogan, doesn't mean that you're going to make millions after because from what I well, understand. Well, if anything, it takes away your credibility. I know. 
I know. And then nobody will work with you in the medical industry at this point. So like while people like us, it makes me respect him more and I find out about him. Like what does that do for their ability to share the message? And in reality, we all now know this information. We're all learning. We all are educated about it. But what are we really going to do about it? Like I personally can refuse a statin that's being prescribed to me for my doctor, but it's not fixing the root problem. We talk a lot about how you know, you have to get to the root cause of your diet, of your choices, of your addiction. We have to get to the root cause of what's happening in the medical industry for things to change on a larger scale. There's like a camp of like Nina Tysholz who wrote The Big Fat Surprise. And so she's trying to go to the governmental bodies to change the dietary guidelines. That's obviously really good. The movement is not as much as they give all the science they're losing in the conversations. Sure, there's some levels of movement, but I think it really comes down to each and every one of us understanding when we hear that our loved one or family member has to get on statins, that that science is not necessarily correct, and that we will make a grassroots movement within our communities, and hopefully they'll share with their communities, and eventually people will take less statins. Like That is my hope for now, because otherwise, I mean, it's the future seems so grim. Right. I do want to talk, I want to focus on that, right? And I think that's the goal of what we want to talk mostly today is about statins and cholesterol, because I think that there are a lot of us who are emboldened to not take them, but I still do think even within the carnivore community, there's a lot of people who are scared. um, This is one of the few things, obviously we're not giving medical advice. And I even, even this is where like legally, maybe you have to say, go talk to your doctor, but like, should you not, I'm not even (laughs) know, I don't even know if I'm encouraging you to do that. I'm encouraging you to do your own research and not take your advice from me personally. Um, but I'm just saying like, I'm not even telling you go talk to your doctor because your doctor is going to tell you to take a statin. Yep. Um, this, if you know somebody who is taking a statin or if you personally are taking one, I would strongly encourage you to listen to the first hour of this podcast, especially, but he really talked about the fact that 80% of your cholesterol is genetic especially your total cholesterol, is determined by your genetics. Now, you can alter some of the components of your cholesterol, such as your triglycerides and your HDL with diet, but things like your total cholesterol are 80% of that determination is due to your genetics. There are people who just are more genetically predisposed to having higher cholesterol. Uh, And so the things you should be most worried about, which I do think most of us in the carnivore community know, is your triglycerides. You know, we want them to be under 100. Um... And I think that's really important. So the, you know, Nina Teicholtz, you mentioned earlier, has a quote that I use often, which is the demonization of cholesterol is one of the greatest um, misconceptions or like one of the greatest problems with the 20th century medicine. Um, and because it cholesterol, you need cholesterol, right? I have a, I wrote down so many information that I want Um wanted to share, but I didn't do a good job. Well, let me, let me give you some quotes just from the carnivore cure version two that I'm writing or the, the book, the second book that I'm writing. So 25% of our body's cholesterol is in the brain. 70% is in the outer coating of our nerves. Most of our cholesterol that we have in our body is produced inside the body. So it is not from meat. So I think that's where Dr. Asim is talking about how it is genetic. So if cholesterol was so bad, why is our body doing everything it yeah. can to produce cholesterol? Um, we have hormones, all the steroid hormones. So this is not just sex hormones. We talk mostly about sex hormones. So that's the androgens such as testosterone and estrogen, progesterone, DHEA. All of those are produced by the steroid hormones, which again is produced 
primarily from a B vitamin. I think it's B5 as well as cholesterol. So any excess will always go to support those sex hormones. But then there's also mineral corticoids. So this is what allows your um, stress response and the regulation of salt with aldosterone. And, and then you have the glutocorticoids, which is also what helps you to balance blood sugars with cortisol. So if all of these are steroid hormones, which really need cor- cholesterol to thrive, why would your body be producing a toxic, harmful thing that we have to now human made have to reduce it because we know better literally need cholesterol to produce all of those things. And then every single, almost every single outer layer of your cells in your body, except for maybe red blood cells, that outer layer is made up of cholesterol. So again, when we are taking these statins, are we pulling it from our healthy cells because we don't have enough to give away? Yeah. Well, in in reality, think about the last episode that we did. We talked about hormones and how important it is for women to have healthy hormones as they age and to get healthy hormones. We believe you don't need carbs, but you need fat for that. Well, what is also coming in with the fat is some cholesterol. Like women need the cholesterol, like you just mentioned, to have healthy hormones. Um, They're actually, Dr. Asim mentioned that once you hit 50, your cholesterol will naturally drop. And if you are seeing a drop in your cholesterol after 50 years old, there is actually an increase in your mortality. Right. So the fact that when your cholesterol goes too low after 50 years old, it actually shortens your life expectancy versus people thinking that like high cholesterol um, causes you to have shorter life expectancy. There is no correlation saying that. Yeah, I cited a study of his um, in one of my talks and it says the 2020 British Medical Journal... Uh, found that 75% of the 35 trials reported no reduction in mortality when taking cholesterol-lowering drugs. So 75% of 35 trials showed that there's no benefit. And again, if we just think about the common thought that our body produces most of the cholesterol we need, and so maybe if we're excessively stressed, we need more cortisol and therefore we need more fat. Again, why are we reducing something that our body work so hard to make on its own if we think it's so bad for us. Yeah. There's so many experts that just talk about the minimal benefits, right? Another minimal benefit is, you know, there's obviously people who, uh, doctors who are going to push a statin if you've had a heart attack, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, and Dr. Asim mentions that if you've had a heart attack and you take a statin diligently for five years, right? It adds the equivalent of four days to your life. Wow. If you take that statin diligently for five years after having a heart attack, the benefit that you're getting to that is equivalent to four days of additional life expectancy, right? And what he really talks about is the benefits are just non-existent, essentially. He and so many other experts, I mentioned Dr. Avedia constantly, that talk about there's almost no benefits from taking a statin in general. And he also mentions that the side effects are drastically underreported and that's where there is no, there is almost no benefit, but then the negatives are so underreported. And a lot of the reason why any type of side effect is underreported is that when they go through drug trials, there's two reasons. The first is you are not actually seeing the data of the side effects that come out of these drug trials. What you are seeing is the analysis that the drug companies do on those studies. So they don't actually have to just spit out the number of people that have side effects and then how those side effects affect you. What you're seeing is 
and what is usually published is the analysis that the prescription drug companies who paid for the studies in the first place does on that data. And then they get to decide how they interpret that to the public that explains the side effects. And then that's what your doctor is legally required to say is that analysis. So that's number one. The other thing is, is that for statins specifically in the largest randomized control trial that they did for statins, there was 36,000 people that experienced side effects that were removed from the trial before it even started. So they have what they call a pre-randomized control period. So before they say they're going to start on like X day, they might give you this drug for 30 days before the actual official trial starts. And if you experience side effects in that pre-trial period, they will remove you from the trial. Right. And it's estimated that 30% of people that take statins experience uh, life-altering or like debilitating or, um, you know, negative enough side effects that it negatively affects their life. Fatigue, muscle aches, like headaches, like all of these uh, side effects that are coming from statins. You know, when you actually look at the data, it's 30% of people are experiencing negative enough side effects that it uh, affects their life poorly. When I did research on just how vaccines are produced and it so in that study, I also realized about the trials for medications, including statins, most drugs and vaccines don't make it to like the third trial. So there's always right. a drop rate. And eventually the third trial or the third phase is the most stringent and most don't make it there. So obviously us doing this quick turnaround of the vaccines is always concerning when they have that side note. But with the statins, I totally believe it. And even if they had 10 studies that showed the statins were non-beneficial and were risky, they have the opportunity to not share it. So it is up to them once there is a study that they kind of like, like you said, they can manufacture it in a way that's beneficial to them. And, And then when the researchers are also getting funded by the pharmaceutical companies, they'll also have that user bias of I'm looking for a certain data set to be result, uh, released. And so there's always that human error as well. And along those lines, one of the quotes that that he mentioned in the podcast was the greater the financial interest, the less likely the findings are to be true. Right. Uh, And I thought that was it's that rang so true. They do that even for food. There's too much money. Oh, they this is why I like I really do love his message and why he was so big in our community long before the whole vaccine thing was simply because he's speaking out against processed foods. He's speaking out against smoking. The greatest advancement in lowering our expected or increasing our life expectancy and decreasing heart disease and heart attacks was the restrictions that were put on smoking. And I don't agree with government bans and regulations, but his fix to this is to put like bans and regulations on processed foods. Um, because that's where you we've seen such a dramatic increase in life expectancy from the bans that were done on public smoking uh, and the warning labels that are required to put on smoking. Yeah, and I think they also started taxing it a lot more, so then it's more expensive. Yes. And so when so his idea is like to tax processed foods and and those types of things. Yeah, we saw Doctor Diamond at Boca a couple years ago, and he also talked about cholesterol. But he talked about how. There was that study by Lipitor, um, and I think they're now owned by Pfizer. And they obviously don't make a ton of money on that now because the patent has expired. But they said that of 
people that have had heart attacks that take cholesterol medications, only one in 100 will benefit. And so all the adverse symptoms, um, the biggest one is muscle aches and muscle atrophy, which if you have muscle issues, I mean, we talked about it so much that the way for longevity is to maintain your muscle mass. And if that's what cholesterol is reducing, and oftentimes people that are taking these cholesterol statins are people that are generally older, then what are you doing to their muscles? There's also indications of mental health, right? So I just said that 20% of our cholesterol is in our brain. And if people are forcing to take these reduction in cholesterol medications like these statins, what is it doing to their mental health? There's studies that show that men get more aggressive and have mood behaviors and issues and, and lots of mental illness around this. And yes, we don't talk enough about the symptoms and we never think a statin would affect our muscles. So I would think it's underreported just from that as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the component of a statin, which helped me to understand is that it is an anti-inflammatory drug itself, which is why it's helping to reduce those things and the minimal benefit that does come from it. But think about it. If we just focused on diet changes, things that we cut out the sugar, we cut out the inflammatory foods that we were eating, the benefits would be much more, um, which we bought much higher, but then you wouldn't deal with any of the risks either, right? This is where there is not enough demonization happening about sugar. There should be warning labels on sugar and processed foods. And that's the things that should, but there's, that's also the food that has the most profit. So when we think about the profit industry, like there's not a lot of profit margin that's happening on beef. And as much as we we're told sometimes in the headlines that the ranchers are the ones rising up the meat prices, they're not, right? We know, I know from just knowing Sylvia and carnivore snacks, right? Anytime you're dealing with a meat product, the profit margins are almost non-existent. But when you're dealing with packaged cereal and Oreos and any type of processed food, when the ingredients are so cheap and the taste is so palatable, the profit margins are so, so high. So those are the foods that they're not wanting to limit or regulate simply because that's the foods that they have the biggest profit margin on. Yeah. Or even if you think about meat. So um, if you buy a whole rotisserie chicken, it's way cheaper than if they broke down that chicken and process it into chicken nuggets and then selling it as chicken nuggets. It's more profitable to sell it as processed chicken nuggets. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's just really unfortunate that so much of this is driven by money. And so the food and pharma industries have to work together because if you eat the bad food, then you'll get sick. And then the pharma industry is right there ready to support you. And then it becomes this vicious cycle. Yeah, but how interesting that somebody like Bill Gates is investing in vegan foods and vaccines, right? He's been the biggest pusher of that in some of the medical industry. And then also he's an investor in Coca-Cola and McDonald's and, you know, all of these things that have tremendous profit margins that then can be given government incentives and medical incentives and financial incentives. like. That doesn't, I don't think there's a coincidence there. There's no way that Bill Gates is as smart as he is and uh, well-versed and well-read as he is, and that he just was taught wrong and believes that meat is truly bad and the plant-based foods are just that much healthier. I'm I'm sure he knows about plant toxins and anti-nutrients. There's just no way as as well-read of a person as he is. Yeah, look at the other industry, though, that he's invested into is in saving the planet and in renewables and solar and in all of this electric cars when, you know, I mean, I am maybe have a little different perspective on this, too, because I work in the oil and gas and energy industry and knowing that things like coal and nuclear energy actually run cleaner and are able to 
fuel more people versus electric power and solar power. And there's so many challenges with that, right? In California, you're not allowed to buy a gas-powered vehicle after 2035 anymore, but they're also telling you you can't plug your electric vehicles into charge because the power grid can't handle it. Like, and and this, you know, the the I don't know, this is we're getting. Oh wow, I'm I I didn't know that, but like. Yeah. So, I mean, last summer they were having all these rolling blackouts and literally two weeks after they enacted the law that is saying you cannot buy a gas powered vehicle after 2035. They, uh, Gavin Newsom came out and said, please don't charge your vehicles right now because our power grid can't handle it. Like one, uh, Tesla to charge one Tesla is like running 10 refrigerators. Right. So the power that it takes to charge your electric vehicle and then also not even to go down the rabbit hole of like the ore that's mined to make the batteries and the expense and the landfills and all the things. But again, look at what else Bill Gates is investing in all that technology. And guess who else is regulating it? The government. So this is where you have powerful, rich people getting financial incentives to the government to enact laws to make them richer And then all of that goes down to the medical industry, like all of these things where you have too many powerful, rich people that are impacting the government regulations that then turns around and makes them more rich and more powerful. And I do believe truly that that's what our medical industry has turned into today. And while there are good, well-intentioned doctors and nurses who are working so hard to help people, the industry itself is set up to make you sicker. And that combined with the food industry, they want you in your house, reliant on them 100%. Yeah. And I don't even think it's, they methodically think that way. Like I am like, I'm making a drug. I'm going to make people sick. I think they just think the trajectory is that people are diabetic and the rates of diabetes are going up. So we project with this budgeting and planning that X more number of people will get sick. So therefore we're going to create these drugs that will fix it. So it's absolutely profit driven and money driven. Yes. Um, It's just, I know that there's some people that don't necessarily think it's evil. I am in the total gray area with that. But I I do think people are willing to look the other way if it's more profit driven. And it's unfortunate that a subset of people will get affected by it. Like, I think that's what they think. I don't know. But I, I, I just wanted to touch upon why they would even go after cholesterol, because I think it's just an important topic and why our carnivore community does get scared when they see their LDL go up, their total cholesterol is like written in red or dark, bold black on their lab core or quest or whatever lab they go to. And it says high or out of range It's scary, and it's scary. And then as soon as they go to the doctor, the doctor's like, see, your diet is bad for you. You're going to have a heart attack. There's a risk. You need to get on a statin now. If you are eating lots of carbohydrates, inflammatory seed oils, lots of things that cause inflammation, and there's so many, it could even be a chronic illness in your mouth or your oral health that is then causing inflammation that then goes closer to your heart. So whatever the reasons are, when your valves are starting to not be as strong, your body feels the inflammation and tells the cholesterol to go there to support that area. So intentionally, it's going there to repair. And so when there's a cardiovascular event, you will see cholesterol there. But cholesterol was actually there to support the system and not be the reason that the heart attack happened. So the ultimate thing we need to fix is the inflammation. Like, why do you have inflammation in 
your heart valve area, right? So maybe it's not just if the diet alone doesn't fix the level of inflammation, and let's say it's not SIRS or an environmental illness, maybe you have oral cavitations that are chronically causing inflammation in your mouth, that then you swallow that the saliva and it's getting towards your heart health. Maybe it's the excess stress in your life, or I know that a lot of more information is coming on these ultra marathoners that causes inflammation in your system. And maybe at a certain point, it's too much for the body to handle and you're releasing cholesterol in those parts and you will have a cardiovascular event. We know so many people, again, to add to another one of those things that's just becoming so much more common that you're hearing about is women with breast uh, implant illness. Right. And I know I can name you a dozen women that I know personally who are having their implants removed because it was negatively impacting their health uh, and literally causing its their body to attack itself. Yeah. For and years. No, no, I believe that. I mean, you're basically, you put an foreign thing in your system and then your body starts producing. And I'll, I'll put a link to an article and an interview I did with one of my clients and she had her breasts removed and she shares all the gory details, but you see the sack that was in put inputted in her body. And I think it's the FDA, but they put a black box label and the black box label for any medications means that there is a high risk of just adverse effects. And for breast implants, there's a black box label and not a lot of people talk about that too. We have blamed cholesterol because Ansel Keys cherry picked a lot of the studies of which countries had heart disease. And, And then it was just such an easy culprit to blame. And we have shown in the last 50 years since Ansel Keys Heart disease has not really gone down. And we have shown that we reduced our saturated fat amounts. So at a certain point, when are we going to wake up and say, maybe it is not the saturated fats and it is not cholesterol that's causing our heart disease. And in my book, I talk about how the doctors score who needs to get on a statin or not. And even that is not enough of if you go off just LDL, your risk of determining if someone will have a heart event in the next 10 years, it's like less than 25%. But if you have somebody test their CAC score or their um, calcium scan, and if that score keeps worsening, that has a much higher risk of indicating if you're going to have a cardiovascular event in the next five to 10 years. So we're even measuring the wrong stuff. And so I think if people are being pushed to take a statin, there are some people that may need it for some reason. It could be a familial thing, but we should be very, very cautious when we decide to take these medications. Yeah. And you should have a doctor that is explaining to you the potential risks, the benefits that are going to come out of it. This is where I, no matter what prescription you are taking, I know people who are taking a prescription and you ask them why, and they're like, I don't know. This is what my doctor told me to take, Oh yeah, right? My doctor gave me these prescriptions. Uh, and it could be hormones or statins or whatever it is. Like your doctor gave you a prescription and you just take it versus are we analyzing what will this improve for you? Do they even know? Can they quantify the improvements in your health that it's going to provide? And what are the risks, the side effects, the potential issues? And is that analyzed data that's being given from the drug company themselves or is it actual data? And I think that informed consent, in-depth informed consent needs to be happening for every prescription you take. This is not a blanket message of stop taking all your prescriptions. It's saying you need to do an analysis of the risk reward and make sure that you are truly informed on what it is that you're taking. And I want to say too, like, 
I just as a counter to the cholesterol thing, I did appreciate the fact that at KetoCon, Dr. Sean Baker mentioned that like just we shouldn't be like super excited about sky high LDLs all the time and that it doesn't ever mean anything, right? We're not saying no matter what your LDL is, you're fine. It's great. The higher, the better. Um, in this podcast, Dr. Asim mentioned that uh, unless your LDL, not your total cholesterol, but your LDL alone is over 300, it has no value in predicting heart disease. So that's an, if your LDL alone, not your total, but your LDL by itself is over 300, maybe then you need to an, an analyze, do I need a statin? Where is the benefit? Where is the risk? What else could I change in my life and my diet and my stress load? to reduce that LDL because it's not like, oh, your LDL is 600. You're, you're, that doesn't indicate anything for heart disease because it might. And we do know carnivores who have like a total cholesterol. I don't know what their LDL alone is, but they are having these sky high LDLs. That, that's not always okay. I don't want us to be putting out that message. Um, I do think though there's other ways to lower it and to adjust it and to look at the bigger picture of your health. We often talk about not letting one blood marker be an indicator of your entire health. When I spoke with Dave Feldman, he alluded to having new research data come out, and it seems pretty promising for the lean mass hyperresponders who typically have a high LDL. I think it's above two, three hundred. Their HDLs in the they're high, maybe above sixties, and then their triglycerides are relatively low. So maybe it's I I don't know the exact numbers. Maybe it's like seventies, eighties. I'll put a link to what the actual definition is, but. Up to this point, I don't think they had definitive, that's okay if you're an LMHR, but it's just a subset of people that don't fit the narrative of what... Can you explain what the LMHR is? Yeah, so it's just those markers. So it's, you are a lean mass hyper-responder if your cholesterol fits into a certain number range. And so it's typically... So typically what they have seen in mainstream healthcare is that when your LDL is high, your HDL is also low and HDL is considered the good cholesterol. All it really means is that you have cholesterol that will mop up any of the yuckier cholesterol maybe that's left over from the LDL. And then the triglycerides is the floating fat that's in your bloodstream. So what they have typically found in the general person that they put on a statin, standard care, standard American diet, is that your LDL will be high, your HDL will be kind of low. Um, I, I don't want to give a number. Um, and then your triglycerides will be north of 100, maybe north of 150. So that's typically the common, I guess, numbers you will see when it comes to high cholesterol and then the recommendations for statins. But in the low carb space, Dave Feldman, and I mean, many of us notice that yes, our LDL goes up and our total cholesterol goes up with that. But then our HDL is also going up. And then also, in addition, our triglycerides are under 100. Right. So then they bucket these people as, and they've called them or defined them as lean mass hyper responders. And so they're doing studies on, is this population risking their health with these higher LDL levels? And that's the studies they're doing right now. And he alluded to that the data looks promising that they probably don't have to worry about it. But I know like Dr. Tro, and there's a subset of people that when they see the LDLs in the 600s, they do get worried still just based on the data right. and the Framingham studies. Which I'll say, listen to that podcast because he he really, really, really debunks that whole Framingham study and talks about how the data itself is um, really gathered unethically. Okay. And I think that was, if, if I'm remembering correctly, that's the study where they removed 36,000 people 
before the study even started. I could be remembering wrong. So this is where like you need to go listen and do actual research. And I'm just trying to like pass along the message. If you're an LMHR, you might be okay. But again, it's you have to weigh the pros and cons, as Laura mentioned, and you have to look at all the blood work markers. It's crazy to think that we are just looking at um, cholesterol as the only inflammatory marker. There's so many. There's fibrinogen, there's CRP, there's all the ones on the SIR side of the um, MMP9, TGF-beta-1. And then I think it's in context of everything, how much inflammation you have in your body is the more indicative result of if you will have a cardiovascular event. Well, one of the biggest indicators of heart disease and your health longevity wise is your stress level. People with chronic stress live less time and like, think about what's happening in your life. This is where we talk about, obviously food is a huge uh, impact on what you're doing in your life and your health, but things like chronic stress and sleep have a major impact on it. Dr. Asim mentioned in this podcast, they did a study on chronic stress and the impact of your life. And they found that If you are the, like, for instance, chronic stress and how it impacts you, if you are the mother of a disabled child, the chronic stress that you are facing every day is equivalent to taking 10 years off of your life. It's aging you an additional 10 years. If you have been subjected to psychological or sexual abuse when you were younger, that's equivalent of aging you 20 years because of the chronic stress that that is putting on your life. And think about stressful jobs. If you're working shift work, if you work overnights, if you work, um, if, if you like, I know a woman who just had triplets, I can't imagine the chronic stress that she's going to be under for, for a long time. Like those types of things have such a tremendous impact on health and heart disease and aging. Uh, and we have to be able to know what can we control? What can we not? And not expecting a medication to actually save us. I think, you know, one of the biggest takeaways that I had that he mentioned at the end of this podcast was from 1850 to 2014 in the US, we've had an increase of 40 years of life expectancy. So we live 40 years longer now than we did before. And they actually surveyed a bunch of medical students to ask them, like, what contribution of that do you think is due to medical intervention and um, any type of like modern medicine? And all these medical students thought that it was like the majority of the reason why we live longer today is all due to modern medicine. And they found that there is only about three and a half to five years that can be contributed to like modern medicine intervention, treatment, surgeries, those types of things. The majority of the reason why we live longer today is due to just public health information and access, drink clean drinking water, sanitation, smoking bans, right? Seat belts. This is uh, safe working conditions he mentioned. Right. And some things like nutrition, people were dying of like nutritional deficiencies previously that we hopefully can avoid now. But now all of a sudden, for the first time in the last hundred years or so, our life expectancy is getting shorter and shorter. And a lot of that is due to vaccines, poor nutrition, obesity, stress, like all of these things that are happening in our society right now that are causing us to actually live less time than we did before. And yet we still have more medical interventions than ever before. So why are we starting to live less? And it's looking at this big picture of our health and our lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, in carnivore care, I started the book and labor death of moms and children are much higher than any other country. Like we're literally at the bottom of the list and it's just, but when you were to also then overlay that with financial wealth of the country, it makes no sense why our kids are dying or babies are dying and the moms too. 
And it's just, it's so unfortunate because a lot of it is the things that we're injecting in our bodies today. And one thing I in health, obesity, like how many times I was extremely obese and very unhealthy when I was pregnant with my children. I'm so grateful every day that they have turned out relatively healthy so far. I wonder all the time if things like Nathaniel's eyes and the kids and their, some of their things there, because I was so unhealthy when I was pregnant with them, I have to like not go back and try to stress myself about, about, out about that. But also just like, I was so unhealthy going through labor and birth that it's a wonder that things worked out okay, because I know what a huge impact that is, whether or not it's, you know, we can, we've debated before like voluntary C-sections and all these different things, but just the health and the stress level of the mom and the lifestyle definitely impacts the future generations and the outcomes that you're going to have during birth. We have to always understand that whenever we are taking medications, there's a cost to that, right? So it's not mm. just, it's, we also are bec- um, causing a burden on our liver and our detox pathway. So it has to clear the medication. That's why there's rules about taking medications and you shouldn't take this with it because it'll affect the medication and the ability to detox. And then as an example, you're not supposed to take grapefruit with certain drugs because grapefruit inhibits Mm. your liver to be able to detox certain things. So then the medication will be heavier in your bloodstream, which is not ideal. It also will deplete nutrition because your body now is, has to use energy and resources to absorb that nutrition, clear it out. And so whatever nutrition you were getting from the meat that would have supported you, now some of it has to go to the statin. And so, or the statin clearance, all the fat soluble vitamins, some of the B vitamins, zinc, and uh, CoQ10 is a big one for the heart health. There's always a cost. And these are not discussed. Like how many doctors that put their patients on statins say, hey, make sure to also take a multivitamin because statins tend to reduce your nutritional balances. I bet you none of them. And these are the things that it's, are we providing true care or are we seeing, ooh, you have high LDL. The answer is statins. But what does that all include if you are just reducing yeah. LDL? That's interesting. I also think there's an element of med- when people are prescribed or given medication for various reasons, right? Chris was given medication for his diabetes and um, he was not told anything. He just was told, take this medication. And he didn't change his lifestyle. He didn't change what he was eating. My grandmother is uh, almost 90. And unfortunately, she's diabetic enough to the fact that she needs insulin. Well, she just like eats what she wants and then takes insulin. And I mean, she's in her 90s. Like, I'm not going to, she's not changing at this point. It's, we're, she's just living her life right at this point. But I do think there is this mindset of like, oh, I don't have to make a lifestyle change. I don't have to make a nutritional change. I'm taking a medication and that's fixing it. But medications aren't giving you better health. They're just, it's like putting a bandaid on a bullet hole, right? Like they're just, um, or they're potentially even causing more issues for you, depending on the situation and the type of medication, like you mentioned. Right. I mean, some diabetic medications make you more obese. So it's, yeah, I yeah. mean, some, some are band-aids, right? So if you take the exogenous insulin, it can balance the blood sugar because otherwise you can die. Some are band-aids, but some of them actually exacerbate illnesses. And I think statins honestly are one of them. I, th- yeah. there is a risk and I'm, I'm glad that Dr. Asim went on Rogan and talked about it, but um, I think the way that we can really move the needle is, having our loved ones question um, a lot of the the medications they're taking and seeing if there can be lifestyle interventions, your statin is not going to reduce by much your risk of cardiovascular disease. So this is one of the medications, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
this one specifically, I don't, and I, we are definitely not trying to say all medications right, are bad, for sure. but I would go back to just encouraging you to say, have you really dug into the benefits that you're receiving? Are you feeling better? Um, and what risks, potential risks are there, right? I know somebody who she shares publicly on social media and she was given, she was told she has Hashimoto's. She was given a medication for it. She had felt fine at the time. So she was surprised to see the Hashimoto's diagnosis. She started taking medication and she started feeling terrible. She's been taking that medication for like, I think it's a couple of years now. She ran out, she stopped taking the medication and she feels great. And she's oh like, wait gosh. a second. Why have I been taking this medication for two years and I've been feeling terrible? It's because a doctor told me I needed to. Now she's been doing a lot of things to try to address Hashimoto's with lifestyle and diet. And so maybe there's not a need anymore, but it is this wild thing of like, wait, I just started taking this medication because my doctor told me to, and now I feel better without it. Like, let me go back and analyze why I'm doing it. It's like, I just want you to ask questions is all I'm saying. If you're taking prescriptions, find out why are you taking them? How is it making you feel? Is it impacting your health in a positive way? And have you really dug into the the negatives? We should always ask why for that person. Um, I just diagnosed someone with Hashimoto's and obviously the easy thing is, oh, go to your endocrinologist and maybe you need to take medications, but their markers are not terrible. Their antibodies. And I said, figure out why your, your thyroid is attacking itself, fix your diet. And then, you know, there's these other supplements they can try, but it is not a normal response for your body to attack your thyroid. So there must be something that's happening. Maybe it's leaky gut, maybe it's some other thing, but why is your body deciding to attack its thyroid? If you figure that out, that you can reverse taking a lot of medications. I don't think you can do it with all, but I do think you can at least reduce it to the bare minimal amount. Yeah, that's all I got. That's, uh, you know, drop the (laughs) mic. Peace out. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura East Bath. You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain.